We're starting a whole new series today uh, in the book of Lamentations. We did two, two, two weeks of, of unadulterated, full power gospel. So like, get ready. And now we're uh, still going to talk about gospel, obviously. <laughs> uh, but we're going to talk about, we're going to talk going into the book of Lamentations. The reason we're doing Lamentations over the next five weeks is uh, during this period of time, prior to Easter, uh, long before there was anything like anything, well, long before there was any such thing as the Roman Catholic Church, long before there was any such thing like that, the church, all the way back to at least the third century, uh, we know that some of the earliest church fathers talk about a period of time of reflection uh, and, uh, prior to Easter, really prior to Good Friday, of reflection of our sin and reflection on what it was, what exactly made Good Friday necessary. And so some parts of the church call it Lent. The church has generally called it Lent throughout the history. Uh, the Anglican church, Lutheran church, all kind of churches uh, think about this time. So some churches have gone like out of control with it, made it compulsory, made it a sin if you don't participate. That's sinful. It's not compulsory. It's completely voluntary. But we one of the principles that we have for our church is we want to be part of the communion of saints as much as we can, uh, holding our theology strong. We want to join and be part of the universal church, however possible. And so, so we can see all the way back to the third, even second century, the church has done this. And so in joining with that and with the universal church, we're going to look at the book of Lamentations over the next five weeks as a like extended meditation on Good Friday. What was it? What made it necessary that God had to die? Had to incarnate and die to pay the penalty for our sins. So it's going to be, you know, this is a heavy, a heavy uh, book. It's really, um, it's a sad book, but it's ultimately also a hopeful book because of what it teaches us about God. And the backstory, Lamentations, is uh, the backstory is uh, that this comes at the end of, of Israel's run of, the, of kings. Of, of, it comes at the end of really a 400-year run since David had established the kingdom of Israel. And as Israel, over four centuries, had slid farther and farther into sin and apostasy, uh, and after centuries and centuries of prophets warning Israel to repent, finally... Her sin catches up with her and God allows the, con- the cumulative consequence of her sin to hit and it hits hard in the complete and total destruction of the city of Jerusalem. God's temple, uh, everything is, 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 is dist- uh, completely destroyed by the Babylonian army, leveled. And Jeremiah, probably the one who wrote this book, sitting in the ruins of the city that he loved, trying to make sense of it all, he writes five elegies, really poems, funeral poems, songs, if you will, about what has just happened to Israel. And that is, those five songs, those five songs of lament, are what make up the book of Lamentations. And so we're going to read the first, we're going to read through the first song today. It's just a bit of a long reading, so I'm going to, not ask you to stand, but let's pay attention and, and, and give, uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word. 
This is Lamentations chapter 1, the first song of lament. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who is princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and hard servitude. And she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, and they fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. And Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, and she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. And all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back, he has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, by his hand they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck, he caused my strength to fail, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand." The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. And for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. For the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. 
My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves, and in the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. Man, that's kind of non-stop, isn't it? Non-stop heavy. Non-stop lament. Uh, it's a depiction of the depiction of the evil and the just overwhelming destruction that had come over Jerusalem. We don't even have, we just don't even have any real reference points to understand what siege warfare was all about. About just encompassing, locking a city in behind enemy walls, starving them to death, letting them run out of water, uh, making war against them was a long, protracted, awful, evil, difficult, and terrible thing. There are some things, there are some things, in, there are some things in the world that are so evil, you just can't even wrap your minds around it. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe, you know, thinking about 9-11 or thinking about the ISIS execution videos they used to send. It was just terrifying. Maybe just thinking about like the present reality of human trafficking and slavery and, and, and the wicked men who entice and enslave girls. Uh, just, the, just the wickedness that goes into that and the, the complete lack of conscience. It's almost hard to wrap your mind around. Maybe you think of sexual abuse in the church. Maybe you think of the Holocaust or our own United States history of the, the brutality of slavery and the continuing brutality of segregation and the continuing brutality, the continuing evil of systemic racism in the world and in the church. If you're paying attention, there is no shortage of incomprehensible evil that we come up against as Christians in the world and that fact of that kind of evil in the world has been the fuel for one of the more popular and more enduring arguments against God, the argument of the problem of evil. People have have posited or said, it's just not possible. Christians believe in an all-good, all-powerful God, and that's just not possible in the face of evil. It's not possible because either God uh, is, uh, knows about evil and cares about it but can't do anything about it therefore he's not all powerful or he is powerful enough to do anything about it and he doesn't therefore he's not good. You can maybe have one, you can have the other but you can't have both. The Christian God of the Bible is obviously, obviously false. 
Uh, and the problem, really, I mean, that argument's been forever, constantly brought up. And the, the flaw in it, where it misses the point, is that it doesn't have, in it, it, just, it, it assumes that there can't possibly be any, uh, any reason for evil in the world. Or, or in other words, really a better way to say it, it's not, it, it cannot think or con- of any conceivable purpose in God allowing evil to run its course and allowing suffering to be in the world. But what if, but what if God has very good reasons for allowing evil to run its course? And what if God, what if he promises that that is a temporary course and that he is promises to do something about it? What if, what if God already has done something about it? Well, those things are true. So really, Lamentations, the, the whole book, is what we call, you know, theologians, philosophers call a theodicy, which is a fancy word that means uh, it is a, a vindication of divine goodness in the midst of the evil that we experience in the world. In other words, it's, a, it's the answer, an answer to the question of why God permits evil. And Lamentations... What Lamentations does is without flinching, it looks dead on out into the world full of suffering and it gives voice to the deepest agonies of grief that we experience. But at the same time, uh, it gives us hope that God is still with us, that his mercies are ever present, and that even though it looks awful and the world is full of evil, that God is still at work accomplishing his plan and bringing salvation to his people. And so that's really what this first chapter is talking about. The first thing Lamentations teaches us is that God allows sin to bring a slow reversal of fortune to wake us up to grace and to the glory of Christ. God, he allows sin to bring a slow reversal of fortune to wake us up to the grace and the glory of of Christ. Let's look at that one part at a time. First part. That God allows sin to become or to bring a slow reversal of fortune. Uh, there's been a lot of attempts to answer that question. Why does why do good things why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow evil things to happen to evil people? Here's one. Here's one answer from the, the poet novelist Kipling. He, uh, in, a, in a poem he had wrote, he spoke about, was lamenting about, why have the gods afflicted me? And this is his answer. Listen to what he says. He says, well, this was none of the Lord's good pleasure, for the spirit he sets in man is free, but what comes after is measure for measure, and not a god that afflicteth thee. As was the sowing, so the reaping is now and evermore shall be. Thou art delivered to thine own keeping. Only thyself hath afflicted thee. Now that's gangster. <laughs> it's harsh, right? He just, what's he saying? He's saying, you get what you get. That's what you get. He's saying, what you reap, you sow. It's, a, it's a really... It is an expression of strict justice that 
like for like, ear for ear, uh, tooth for tooth, uh, that what you do, you are only experiencing just, you're not experiencing anything but the consequences of your own sin and your own foolish uh, behavior. And that's what really the, the world kind of believes that. That's what the world believes. There's, there's some truth in that, that we, there is some sense uh, where in this story Israel is afflicted for a sin. But praise God, it's not the whole story. But listen, listen to, listen to what it does say in, in verse 1, 5, verse 5 and verse 8. Uh, the writer gives the reason why Israel has fallen and why Jerusalem has fallen. It says, her foes have become the le- her head. The enemies pro- her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone astray, captives before the foe. Jerusalem sinned grievously. And therefore, she became filthy. So there is this sense that God, their Israel is being punished for her sins, or the sins are visiting her. Uh, the reason for the fall of Jerusalem says because of her multiplied transgressions, right? And the picture, the picture it gives is this reversal, this tragic reversal of fortune. The, the, cum- the result of Israel's sin is that she goes from this position of, of safety and luxury and power and beauty and, and favor uh, into, into despair. She goes from being a princess to being a slave. Her friends become enemies. Her laughter is turned to bitter weeping. Uh, her luxury to affliction, her honor to being despised, her treasures all the treasures that she has, she's selling just to make basic necessities, just to buy bread. Uh, this picture, consistently, Israel or Jerusalem is being pictured in this in this passage as the as as the bride of Yahweh, the precious bride of Yahweh, who was once a princess and now has been dim, has been diminished to the to the most debased condition you can imagine and it didn't happen overnight it wasn't like everything was great and then the armies uh, Babylon came and laid waste it was a slow thousand year period before the end finally came Uh, this one verse caught my eye as I was reading through this and studying through this verse 1 7 it says Judah Judah's gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude and she now dwells among the nations, but finds no resting place. And my mind remembered Deuteronomy 28, where God makes covenant with Israel and says, here's the requirement. You must keep the law. You must do it. If you do the law and you keep it perfectly, you get to stay in the land. If you don't do the law, if you don't keep the law perfectly, you will be not only kicked out, but it gives an entire chapter of curses that are going to fall upon Israel. Famine. Uh, disease, sickness, and eventually it says straight up, you're going to fail, you're going to be kicked out of the land, and it says, same, same words, among these nations you'll be kicked out and you will find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Same words, it's telling us, it's cueing us in. Now what's happening here is God being consistent with the law 
that he gave Israel at the very beginning, a thousand years ago. And for a thousand years, he sent prophets to warn Israel over and over again, centuries of prophets. And then he had Jeremiah the prophet for decades was in Jerusalem saying, repent of this. If you follow after, if you, dis, if you despise the blessings of your covenant relationship with God in favor of the foolish things of the world, if you so desperately yearn after human power, God will leave you with nothing but human power. And you will find in that state that there is none to comfort. That, that phrase, none to comfort, is the unifying theme of the whole chapter. It says it five times. There is none to comfort, none to comfort, none to comfort me. And Israel's response to all of that was verse 9. She took no thought of her future. And therefore her fall was terrible. And so, on one hand, this is the end result of a thousand years of consistent holding God at arm's bay for foolish things. Uh, and, but on the other hand, and so it is, there is that sense that it's, they are going into captivity. Jerusalem has fallen because of the transgressions of Israel. However, there's also these other verses right even in the passage that says this was the decree of God. This was God's foreordained decree. Uh, Listen to this, verse 17. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. That that decree is talking about, that's that's the word for God's master plan that he determined before the beginning of time that these things would fall out and happen. And so there's also this sense where God has decreed this to happen. And I, I think, here's something that hit me hard as I was studying this this week. I think I had kind of had a general, when I thought about the fall of Jerusalem and God's decree for it, I mean, I knew that there was this long history of this long history of disobedience that finally culminated in that, but I kind of felt like God, the decree was, God was warning, warning, warning Israel, and then very end, he finally got fed up with them and decreed the Babylonian army, called them in, turned Jerusalem into a parking lot, and that was kind of gist of it. But really what this is saying is that the decree is really God's foreordained uh, and working in and with every bad decision, every negative consequence that Israel made so that the fall of Jerusalem wasn't really like God just putting a, a capstone on the end of it. It was, it was the culmination of all of their, uh, the culmination of all of their bad ideas, of all the things that they chased, of all the things that they trusted other than God every bad decision piled up so that the Babylonian war and the exile was really just the natural unfolding of all of the sin of Israel. The treaties that they made, the kings that they trusted in, the treaties that they violated to trust in something else, the human uh, powers that they trusted in over and above God, the war horses that they cultivated, the armies that they rose, they all trusted in these human things and as the course of 
human relationships unfolded with treachery and deceit and sin in the world, those things just all caved in on them and eventually the cumulative sin of Israel resulted in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction and the exile that God was working in and through all those things the whole time. Now, why would he do that? Here's the difference. The difference is Israel's sinning and God just like cuts them off at the end versus Israel's sinning and God is working in through all of those things to bring them to the end of themselves, which was his purpose. He foreordained that, knowing how sinful we are. He purposefully set stuff up to bring you to the end of yourself. There's this... uh, And so God allows sin to run its course and allowing sin, ours and the world's, to affect us and his people, sometimes in terrible ways. Uh, He does that on purpose to bring us to the end of ourselves, but that does not mean that he's not with us. Second thing, he does that to wake us up to grace. There's this term in term they use, medical term they use when they walk in, like paramedics walk into a building or a room and somebody's had a heart attack and they're unconscious, they say that they're unresponsive. That means they're not, there's no sign of life, right? And uh, uh, if you're in a hospital and you become unresponsive like that, especially for cardiac arrest, they'll use a, a manual defibrillator which will shock you with 200 joules of electric power. It's enough to kill you but they do it at the right time when the heart is defibrillating, they're able to apply that shock in just the right way at just the right time, which is why they need, you need medical doctors to be trained to use the manual version of defibrillators. They're able to do that shock that would normally kill you in just the right way, just the right time to shock you and jumpstart your heart. Signs of life going again. Uh, and there is a, a phenomenon that I've been thinking about a lot lately of, of spiritual unresponsiveness. There is a point where people can get so caught up, we can get so caught up uh, in the desires of our heart and our sin that we become unresponsive to even, even the best counsel, even, even the best friendships, even... You can sit with people uh, and show them logically, coherently why the Bible says these certain things, why it's damaging, and they are completely unresponsive. No, no amount of coherent logical argument is able to penetrate what the heart desires. And sometimes when we get to that spot, the Bible says what God does is hand us over to it. He, hand, he gives us over to that to destruction, uh, to wake us up. It's like giving a shock. We can become so spiritually unresponsive. We can become just like, just as plaque can fill our arteries and harden our arteries, sin can harden our hearts to such a way that 
the only thing or the thing that really works is for God to shock us in just the right way at just the right time to bring us back into our senses and to bring signs of life back to us. And that's what's happening in the fall of Jerusalem and that's what's happening in some of these massive uh, discipline that God does upon his people. It's totally my story. I mean, if you may know my story, that was me. I was absolutely unresponsive to spiritual things and God allowed me allowed sin to accumulate into my life to the point where it was so unmanageable and so destructive, uh, the shock of it was so great that it shocked me back into my senses. And he used that destruction to turn me from my foolishness and focus and, and back to him. Uh, and so listen to, listen to some of the things that happened in this passage you see Jerusalem in their stubbornness or it's in, their, in the aftermath of their sin and in the aftermath of the shock of the destruction of Jerusalem, there's these to, uh, total reversals of attitude. In the first part of the, of the chapter, it's talking about the reversal of fortunes, Israel going from a place of blessing to a place of, of despair. And in the aftermath, the aftermath of, of the destruction was Israel going in and reversing her attitudes. She realizes that she's been deceived. Once the shock happens, she understands for the first time that she's been deceived. Look at verse 19. It says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Prior to the shock, completely convinced that the spiritual adultery that Israel was engaged in was her benefit, her good, what she must have to be okay after the shock, clearly able to see. These lies, these deceptions are just that. They were deceiving me into death. And it wasn't just, I think, the world uh, and the ideas of the other nations creeping in. Right after, in the same verse, it says, my priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive my soul. I think that's talking about corruption in the church, woken up to corruption in the church, woken up to corrupt ideals that we are presented with in the church. Uh, chapter 2 is all about the corruption of the leadership of the church and lamentation. So I think this is talking about that. They also have a realization of what they had, what we had in Christ. Verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were heard from days of old. Totally reminds me of the prodigal son. When I went to do his thing and ran out of money, eventually was sitting eating pig food. Saying, and he said, and God totally used that to snap him out of it. He's like, what am I doing? I'm eating pig's food. I could go back to my father's house. And he does. Uh, and there's all, and then, and also there's a repentance, a real taking responsibility. Uh, in verse 18, it says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Man, I mean, those, those words in the, in the ears of a counselor or a pastor or in your own life are golden, man. That's what you want to hear more than anything to see signs of life, to know that the shock has worked, that the heartbeat is starting regular again, is to hear that kind of 
real repentance. Uh, because that is a sign of life. Sometimes we think that we would judge things by, uh, you want to judge uh, life or spiritual life in someone based on their obedience, but that's not always a good judge because people can, be, you know, people can modify their behavior for all sorts of selfish reasons and on the outside appear really good. But when you, when you see a person who has got to that point where they were like, chasing it down, realize they're eating pig food, come back to the father's house, father runs and greets them, throws a giant party, because that's who he is, and they say, I, I, you're right, Lord, you were right, I rebelled against your word. That is a more accurate sign of life than just about anything. Even Paul says that in Romans in the innermost man, I delight in the law of God. When you see that, that is a kind of, that's what, that's a sign of life and something beautiful. And so, look, God will bring destruction. He brings destruction, his wrath, which is allowing people to experience the consequence of sin. And he does that to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will turn back to his grace, to all the beautiful things that he has for us. And in that, it shows us that even God's wrath is his mercy to us. It's his kindness that is drawing us back into repentance and to show us the glory of Christ. Last, last part, glory of Christ. You read this, we read this passage like this. It's so full of sorrow and judgment and pain. Uh, maybe you have a tendency to think about God in his dealing with Israel or in his dealing with us in our sin as being angry and being uh, just tolerating us, like holding his nose and holding us out at arm's distance while he disciplines us and and. Uh, deals with us as he deals with him. Well, that is not at all the picture that the Bible gives us. Uh, you know, one of, the, one, of, one of the fears that keeps me up at night is the fear that one of my kids will walk away from the faith when they get older. You know what I'm saying? Parents, feeling me? I mean, it keeps me awake at night. I was just like, what would I do? What would I do, for example, if one of my daughters had left the faith and were out doing what I used to do and I would know what they were doing and that would just terrify me. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, man. And, 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 and would I, you know, what is, as I was in sleepless nights, as I was praying and longing for her return, would I be holding my nose if she came back to the house or as I went out to try to find her? No. I would do anything, anything to win her back. My heart would be this overwhelming river of compassion and longing and prayer for her to come back. And that's God's heart in this passage. You know how I know that? Listen. I was really studying through this and there was a couple parts, a few verses that literally made my the hair stand up on the back of my neck and my tears 
eyes, eyes flooded with tears. And it's the names that he calls Jerusalem all through this. There's passages that say, you know, she became filthy. She did this, she did that. But he never calls her that. You know what he calls her? Through this whole thing, he calls her daughter. Daughter of Zion. Zion is opposed to uh, Jerusalem. Zion is the word used for salvation. If you are in the city of Zion, you you are in God's saved people. Calls her the virgin daughter of Jacob. I'm reading through, studying Revelation right now to teach in China and in the saints. The saints in, in Revelation are always presented as white virgins uh, because it's a statement. It's not a statement of, they're, they're not really virgins. It's a statement of God's purity that he's, that he's presented over them. And so through this whole passage, in the midst of all this destruction, God never stops calling her by her redeemed name. She's his daughter. And he's going to do anything to win her back. And he does. He keeps calling her these names, even though that's not what she is. Listen, this is what she is. She sinned grievously. She became filthy. She became despised. Everyone's seen her nakedness. She groans and turns her face away. She weeps bitterly. Her uncleanness is on her. Uh, She gives no thought of her future. Her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. And at the end of that verse, what does she do? She doesn't run from God. She cries out to God for salvation, to see me. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is triumph. She's calling out to the Lord, and how does he respond? Daughter of Zion, virgin daughter of Jacob. That's not who she was, but it's what he called her, because that's who she was to him, to Christ, in Christ. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? Uh, one of the more shocking things I heard in seminary, amazing things, was one of, our, one of our professors said that in the Psalms, all of the Psalms are the words of Christ. They're either the words of Jesus as our high priest speaking to us, or They're the words of Jesus as our sacrifice speaking to God for us. And so the words of Jesus, uh, he can be speaking about our transgressions as being his own because he took them upon himself. So listen to verse 12. Listen. See if this sounds familiar. He says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look. And see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Whenever the Bible says the day of his fierce anger, it's talking about the day of the Lord. It's anywhere in the Bible where God comes in judgment is depicted in the Bible as the day of the Lord. It's his eternal day of of Sabbath righteousness breaking into space and time. And when God's present in the world, 
his ethics come with him and judgment ensues. Strict judgment. Kipling judgment. Whenever that happens is the day of the Lord. So you see uh, throughout the Bible the uh, um, the fall is the day of the Lord. The flood is the day of the Lord. The exodus Uh, is the day of the Lord. The conquest of Canaan is the day of the Lord. The exile, the fall of Jerusalem is the day of the Lord. The return of Jesus is the day of the Lord. All of these things are the day of the Lord because they speak of God's judgment coming into earth. There's one other instance of that the Bible calls the day of the Lord that's most important to us, and that is the cross. The cross is depicted by the gospel writers as a day of the Lord where fierce wrath and darkness and the sun is blotted out and all of these prophetic images of judgment happen when Jesus was crucified because God's judgment was coming upon Jesus for us. He was judged for our sins. His sorrow, was our sorrow became his sorrow all of this lamentation, all of this suffering, uh, all of this affliction God brought onto Jesus on the day of his fierce anger at the cross. (laughs) And so all interspersed, just woven into this chapter like golden thread are all these words of Christ speaking about how he has taken our affliction upon himself that he has been judged for all of our sin so that we would never have to worry about being judged by God. We're free. We are safe. We are possessed by God and he will never let us go. He will discipline us, but we are absolutely safe in that. We are suffering now, but that's not the end of our story. We are going through an evil age right now, but that's not our end. Uh, As I said, this whole first chapter speaks about Jerusalem in the feminine, in the the feminine tense, speaking to her as as the as the bride of Yahweh, the prince, the princess of Yahweh. Really, we could say the bride of Christ. (laughs) That's her position in the world. We're in despair because of our sin and yet at the same time God speaks righteousness over us that we are his daughter because of what Jesus has done for us. And the end of the story of the bride of Christ is this. Look at the book of Revelations. Same, same thing. In Lamentations, the bride of Christ is bitterly weeping But in Revelation, at the end of the story, it says, And then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came to me saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, as clear as crystal. That's us. That's who we are. That's why Christ took his, 
our affliction upon himself. That's what Jesus did at the cross to save us from the bitter weeping and anguish of the suffering of the cumulative sins of ourselves and the world that we all add to. He's done away with that so that our ultimate reality is that we are wrapped in the radiance of God. We are glowing with his countenance. We are absolutely secure in the beloved. And at the end of our story is not bitter weeping. It's laughter and rejoicing in the biggest party the world's ever seen as we go home to be with Jesus forever. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us things about how beautiful you are. Even in our sinfulness, Lord. Lord, I hope you would beat it out of our heads that our sinfulness does not shock you. That our sinfulness does not drive you away from us. That you... The reason that you came for us was to save us from our sin. That when you saved us, you knew about all the sin that we were yet to do. As we sit here in church right now and praise your name, as you assure us of your salvation in the gospel, you are fully aware of everything that we are still going to do. And that does not phase you nor does it change your position towards us in Christ. You've given us his righteousness, and although in reality we may be weeping bitter tears, the ultimate truth about us is that we are wrapped in your glory and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that someday soon you will make that a physical reality as well. So, Lord, we pray that as we wait, that we would wait for you as watchmen, wait for the coming of the sun. As watchmen wait uh, on the walls of Jerusalem, we would wait in that same eager expectation of the fullness of your promises. Come to us in Christ, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, and save us from this evil age. Amen.